there's a podcast I think our listeners would want to know about. It's called Seen on Radio. The show has received much acclaim for its deep and engaging dives into the history and the very structure of American society. How can we see society more clearly so we can be more effective in changing it? Seen on Radio's two recent documentary series, Seeing White and Men, have explored racism and sexism in eye-opening ways. Check out Seen on Radio. That's S-C-E-N-E on Radio from the Center for Documentary Studies and PRX. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. What does it really mean to be poor in America? That's the question for a guest on Future Hindsight today, Stephen Pimpere. He's a nationally recognized expert on poverty, homelessness, and U.S. social policy. He's also the founding director of the Center for Community Engagement and Experiential Learning at the University of New Hampshire. His second book, A People's History of Poverty in America, received the Michael Harrington Award from the American Political Science Association for demonstrating how scholarship can be used in the struggle for a better world. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So we could be talking for hours about poverty. It's so complex. But let's focus on the experience of being poor. Your book on the people's history of poverty in America really takes that to heart. It's a book telling the stories about the poor by the poor, essentially. What does it reveal about what poverty really is? One of the questions that that I grappled with throughout the book was trying to evaluate whether the experience of being poor in the United States has, in fact, changed as much as we like to think it has. And I think that in some really important ways, not. We have always, I think it is fair to say, in the United States, understood poverty as a moral failure. We have almost always judged that as the fault of the individual and the failure of them to do all of the things that they ought to be doing not to be poor. We've got this narrative of self-reliance and upward mobility and the streets are paved with gold and anyone who works hard and plays by the rules can grow up to be anything that they want to be. And we've internalized that narrative despite the fact that particularly in at least the last 50, 60, 70 years, that's just simply not true anymore. Well, Your book explains so much about how it was to be poor. In fact, one of the things that was really shocking to me is how hostile our society is to the poor. Truly harrowing tales about how the poor are cruelly treated, homeless men being burned alive or beaten to death, essentially for sport. How would you explain that? We have created this sort of natural cultural understanding of poverty as moral failure. And that for a number of functional reasons throughout history, we have dehumanized poor people themselves, particularly homeless single men, are often singled out as being the worst offenders. I don't know that I want to characterize those stories as common, but I certainly don't want to characterize those stories as unusual. If we stop and we think about that, and we think about just how widespread poverty is, we have among the highest rates of poverty in all of 
rich democracies. We have the highest rate of elderly poverty. We have the highest rate of child poverty. We have the highest rates of inequality. We have some of the lowest life expectancy rates. We have some of the highest infant mortality rates. If we think about that, if we sit in that basic reality for more than a few seconds, I think that it creates this enormous, uncomfortable cognitive dissonance. It is so fundamentally at odds with the stories that we have told ourselves about who we are, the stories that we have told the world about who we are. Acknowledging that reality, that in some ways the American experiment in democratic capitalism has failed or has at least failed for tens of millions of us. It's too hard for us to come to terms with that, and it remains easier to say, it's your fault. If you were not irresponsible, if you worked harder, if you stayed in school, if you didn't have children too early that you couldn't afford, right? This litany of stereotypes we attach to poor people, and particularly poor people who benefit from welfare programs, that becomes the way in which we rationalize the profound failure of the American political system to provide opportunity for large numbers of its citizens. And I think dehumanizing large groups of people makes it easier for us cognitively to arrive at that place. That makes perfect sense. Culturally, Americans firmly believe in the dignity of work. The poor want a decent paying job, which is surprisingly difficult. Even if you do have a job, it often doesn't pay enough. Many workers at Walmart are actually on public benefits such as food stamps and Medicaid. What are the obstacles to good employment? I mean, there are a couple of things. One is it's simply sort of dearth of available jobs. The other is the quality of those jobs themselves. And it is more complicated than just the decline in union power, but I think that that for me is a very large part of the story. If you look at the immediate post-World War II period in the United States, the years from, say, 1947 into the mid-1970s or so, what you see at that moment is a booming economy with high rates of income growth across the spectrum year after year. But you also see that growth being distributed fairly equitably across the population. And in fact, people in the bottom 20% of the income distribution over that period are actually seeing slightly higher income gains than the people in the top 20% who are also doing just fine. This is also a period in which you see radically higher marginal tax rates than you do now, creating the revenue for us to build uh, broad, expansive social support programs. On top of all of that, we have what I think about as uh, the Swedish welfare state that was erected for white American veterans of World War II. You had free ride at any college or university that you could get into that came along with a living stipend that was enough money to actually live on. Essentially free medical care offered through the Veterans Administration Health Services, and at the same time, subsidized loans that allowed you to buy a house with little or no money down at low interest rates. So we have this massive government intervention. We have enormous pressure that's coming from below. And we have a booming economy that gives us the sense that we have the resources to do it. If you think about that sort of moment, that is a way that points us toward what we can do and what we have done to radically reduce rates of poverty. 
the American dream is not really what it used to be, and there is a lot of inequality. Mm -hmm. Why does inequality matter? It matters as a matter of economics, and it matters in terms of political and social stability as well, and it matters in terms of individual psychology. So in terms of economics, it is not that the economy is a zero-sum game. If you look at the recently enacted tax bill from 2017 that wound up, among other things, radically cutting the corporate income tax rate and then reducing over the longer term individual income tax rates that will, over the course of, of beyond the 10-year period, disproportionately benefit people at the upper end of the income spectrum. That is money that could either be directly given to lower income people as income tax cuts, right, or could be invested in public programs that would disproportionately benefit lower income people. What would happen if you took that money and invested it in a universal daycare program, thereby not only radically reducing the cost of daycare in working class households, but increasing the ability of them to work? And the last piece of this is the political stability question. And this is the one that I think ultimately is probably the most important. In the entire history of political thought, literally going back to Plato and Aristotle, the strain that seems to emerge over and over again is concern about inequality precisely because it makes it difficult for democratic political systems to function effectively. There's Martin Gillens, uh, Larry Bartles, and others have, have done enormous work in the last decade or so that demonstrate that Congress is not enacting laws that respond to the wants and desires of the vast majority of the American public. People may be disengaged with politics because they are frustrated and angered by it. And they recognize that, that in some ways the, the political system has failed them. I worry that there is a breaking point at which so many people are immiserated by the contemporary political system that they either withdraw so much that we no longer have anything that we can recognize as broad-based democratic participation, or they wind up turning that anger toward violence, toward insurrection, toward revolution. Both of those in some ways would be perfectly rational outcomes. And I think we feed that by accelerating inequality and failing to respond to the legitimate needs of large numbers of people. You quoted Amartya Sen at the end of your book and his redefinition of poverty as a lack of freedom yeah. or capability deprivation, in which freedom is the capacity of people to live the kinds of lives they value and have reason to value. This really resonated with me, that living in poverty is not merely lacking enough money for rent and food. It's something really far beyond that. It's inhumane. Yeah. What in your mind are the best solutions when we think about public policy to avert, let's say, a revolution or complete alienation from the democratic process? Yeah. As a matter of policy, I don't actually think it's particularly complicated. So if we look back at, at 1959, that's the first year for which we have official poverty data. And of all groups of Americans, the, the group that had the highest rates of poverty were people over the age of 65. If we look forward to 2017, that's the year for which we have most recent data using that same measure. The group of Americans that have the lowest poverty rate is people over the age of 65. What happened over that period? 
Social Security is what happened. We created the program in the 1930s, but it didn't really become the essentially universal program that it is today until we amended it throughout the 1950s and into the 1960s. So that period of consistent expansion of that program in which we are regularly sending money to people turns out to radically reduce their poverty. For 2017, Social Security program alone lifted 27 million people above the poverty line. Uh, the earned income tax credit and child tax credits and the EITC in particular goes uh, almost exclusively to low-income working families with children. That program alone lifted somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 million people's income above the poverty line. And if you look at research programs in other rich democracies and in less developed countries, there's a convergence among researchers that the single most efficient and effective means of reducing poverty is cash assistance. It's giving people money and trusting that they know better than you do how to most effectively use it for themselves and for their own families. Right. Yes. I want to backtrack a little bit about the poverty line that you mentioned briefly. How is the poverty line defined? <laughs> and how would you define poverty differently? I mean, this was developed in the 1950s, and we sort of backed our way into it. We, we wanted to measure the effects of the War on Poverty program. We didn't have a poverty measure. And there was this weird little thing sitting over in the Department of Labor that Molly Arshansky is the woman who built this measure, said, don't ever use this to measure poverty. It's designed to do something different. It would be a terrible measure. And this is what we wound up using because it was the only thing available. It sets a threshold that is too low. It doesn't adjust for geography, right? So the threshold is exactly the same in San Francisco as it is in rural Mississippi. It's a gross measure. It doesn't take into account a number of benefits. So the value of food stamps or Section 8 housing assistance doesn't get counted. Daycare or out-of-pocket medical expenditures, which can radically reduce the amount of money that a family has available, and the list could go on. In some ways, it's a political problem, right, to change the measure. And most people think that we change the measure to something that is a little more accurate. We're going to wind up radically increasing the numbers of people who count as poor. The Census Bureau has created a thing they call the Supplemental Poverty Measure, which does a little bit better at some of those dimensions. They try to adjust for geography by adjusting for the cost of housing, and they wind up showing that the overall poverty rate is about one and a half percentage points higher than the official measures. But I think the larger problem with both of those measures is that those are point in time measures and they're looking at what is your income over the course of a year. The threshold is $25,000 gross income for a family of four. You're a family of four. You're the sole income earner for that family and you make $50,000 a year. So you're twice the poverty line. That's great. And you work January through the end of June at your job. And then through no fault of your own, you get fired. And it turns out that you're not available for any assistance. Your income from January through June, $25,000. Your income from July through the end of December, $0.00. According to official census data, you are not poor. You show up in those numbers as not poor. Because even though you had zero income for six months, 
you earned that $25,000 over the period of a year. And this is true for lots of income-based measures. They look at annual salary, so that doesn't account for fluctuation. We've got a couple of ways that we can get at this. One of them is, is again, the Census Bureau itself have created a thing they call the dynamics of American poverty measure. And instead of looking at annual income, they will look at monthly income over a longer period of time. When we do that, what we find is that over a four-year period, more than a third of Americans will have their income drop below the poverty line for two months or more, which right away I think is telling us that, oh, this is a much larger problem than we think it is. We think this is other people. This is not other people. This is large portions of us. And over that same four-year period, fewer than 3% are consistently poor month after month after month over the entirety of that four-year period. But that's not what most poverty looks like. Most poverty is, in fact, insecurity. It's people slipping in and out of the of poverty over a regular basis. It's people living on the margins and being one crisis away from devastation. The recent survey by the Federal Reserve Bank just last year show that 40% of all Americans could not come up with $400 cash if there were an emergency in which they had to do that. That sort of instability is common, thanks largely to work by Mark Robert Rank at Washington University in St. Louis and Thomas Herschel, who have been looking at experience of poverty over people's entire lives. And what they find is that if you step back even further, over people's entire adult lives, right, from age of 25 forward, 62% of all Americans will have their income at the bottom 20% for a year or more in their adult life. And 42% of Americans will see their income for a year or more at the bottom 10% of the distribution. This is a widespread problem in the United States. The majority of us will be poor for a non-trivial period of time over the course of our lives. And that, I think, is that insecurity, that instability is increasingly, for me, what I, I would like to see us thinking about rather than trying to figure out sort of what is this abstract cutoff point between what makes you poor and what makes you not poor. Hardships are part of our national experience, and the situation for the working class basically is so precarious that you really don't know what's going to happen the next day. Children are the single largest group of the poor. Yep. How does poverty affect children? What are the long-term ramifications of not addressing child poverty? There are, I think, individual consequences, there are community consequences, and there are national consequences of a failure to address poverty. If you know anything about sort of human development and child development, right, particularly the first few months of a child's life are profoundly important in terms of all kinds of physiological development, but brain development in particular. If you take a child and that child does not have adequate nutrition, or if they are in an exceedingly poor household, which often means very high levels of stress uh, and can often be associated with higher rates of undiagnosed and untreated mental illness, there's, I think, good evidence that that can cause permanent brain damage, if you have literally done damage to your brain, well, I don't care how good your heart is, and I don't care how hard you work, and I don't care how diligent and responsible you are, 
there are going to be limits to what you are going to be able to achieve for yourself as you age, right? The other piece of that is the effects of stress itself causes cognitive impairment. It literally limits your ability. If you live in a regularly stressful environment, if you are worried about, am I going to be evicted? Am I going to be able to keep the lights on? Poverty creates that kind of cognitive load in both children and adults and reduces their ability to engage in good decision-making. And then think about what does that mean for us collectively? Maybe it means more interaction with the criminal justice system and more expense down the road in other kinds of institutions in order to deal with these problems as they develop. And considering the possibility, right, that sort of the next great American innovator in the mold of Steve Jobs is right now about to enter the most severely underfunded school in the Bronx. What do we all lose if that particular individual is going into that system, right? What are we shutting off as, as opportunities, not just for that child, but for all of us to benefit from those intellect resources. I guess, what would it take politically for us to actually demand action from our elected officials, from Congress? There is much broader support among the general public for broader social support programs than are recognized in policy, right? Since we first started conducting public opinion polling in the mid-20th century, often large majorities of Americans have consistently supported something like a universal single-payer healthcare system. We don't have one because the political system in the United States is not configured to reflect those majority desires. The moments when we do see broadly expansive social welfare programs it's large public pressure from the outside. You need to have people in the political institutions who are able to create and enact laws. You don't have the New Deal programs of the 1930s without a large Democratic majority in Congress, at least in the early years, willing to do most of what FDR wanted to do. But I think you also don't have the New Deal programs if you don't have large numbers of people showing up in their cities and their state capitals demanding action out of fear and concern, and at the same time have those local governments and state governments putting pressure on the federal government to do something. I think you need both of those things. Well said. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? As you might imagine, it's a hard question. I mean, I, I am hopeful, and I see these moments when we have recognized that there are unmet needs and we've made efforts to do that and things have gotten better for at least some segments of the American population. Weirdly, one of the things that gives me great hope is what is increasingly looking like existential calamity as a consequence of global climate change. This is a looming crisis that may be of sufficiently grand scale that it dislodges some of these dysfunctional institutions, that it opens up spaces for a new kind of politics, and that it energizes people who are not perhaps now actively engaged in the political system and reorients our politics and, and creates opportunities for change in the future. I hope you're right. Thank you very, very much. This was really fantastic. It was my pleasure. Thank you. We have been so deeply steeped in this misguided notion that poverty is a result of moral failure. Looking at the numbers, 
That's clearly not the case. Hardship is a feature, not a bug. What's really disturbing about this whole thing is that as a society, we dehumanize the poor as a way to justify not doing anything about the structural issues that plague us. What I learned about what's possible is that we have made a huge investment in our society before, right after World War II, with the GI Bill. Veterans had the opportunity to have support to buy a house and to get a full college education. Both those things enabled them to get better jobs and a really big leg up on life. By and large, the veterans who took advantage of the GI Bill have become successful participants in our society. What are the unintended repercussions of welfare reform in 1996? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Catherine Eden. She is one of the nation's leading poverty researchers who works in the domains of welfare and low-wage work, family, life, and neighborhood context through direct, in-depth observations of the lives of low-income populations. She co-authored $2 a day, The Art of Living on Virtually Nothing in America with Luke Schaefer, and was noted by the New York Times as essential reporting about the rise in destitute families. Like most people, I had assumed welfare reform had worked, but what had happened to Ashley is she was stuck in a situation where she couldn't rely on the welfare system or on work, and was living outside of either source of cash income. And we were able to establish that about three and a half million children over the course of a year spend time in a household with virtually no cash income for at least three months. So a huge increase from the early 1990s prior to welfare reform. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Mm-hmm.